Good morning and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Julie Dye and I'm here with my co-host Amy Shepard and we're thrilled today to have a very special guest with us, Rob Andrews. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, Julie. I'm really happy to be here. So we know that you've been working in and around the healthcare system for many years, and most recently as the CEO of the Health Transformation Alliance, and then before that as a member for many years of the U.S. House of Representatives, where you were instrumental in helping develop the Affordable Care Act under the Obama administration. Could you tell us more about the Health Transformation Alliance and you know what its mission is? Sure. Uh, the, the the HTA is a cooperative that's owned by about sixty major U.S. employers. So we're owned by J.P. Morgan Chase and Marriott, Shell, DuPont, International Paper, uh, Weyerhaeuser, American Express, Coca-Cola, a lot of great companies. And those companies provide health care to about four and a half million people here in the United States. And the companies are very different, but they're drawn together by a common purpose, which is to get healthier people to get better health outcomes and frankly, save money at the same time in that order in the U.S. healthcare system. So we're fortunate that we have a lot of great companies that are trying to move in the same direction, which is better health outcomes for the people who work for them. That make that makes sense. We know it's a big challenge, um, and we're going to have to have some big, big people tackling it. So we love to hear all those names that have come together. Can you tell us a little bit more? I, you know, we read on your website that um, these organizations are doing things a little bit differently as it relates to um, being self-insured. Um, tell us a little bit more about what exactly that means. Being self-insured means that. The insurance company doesn't pay the bill when a person has a, an ankle operation. The employer does. So the insurance companies will manage the bank account, if you will, Cigna, Aetna, United Healthcare, companies like that. But the money's not paid by the insurance company. It's paid by the employer and the employee together to get the job done. So the employers in this instance are directly benefiting from better health outcomes. If a person doesn't have to have an operation or they don't have a heart attack, they're less expensive to take care of than if they're, they're more expensive to take care of if they have the procedure, less expensive if they do not. So these employers have a both an economic and a moral interest in achieving better health, health results for their people. Thank you for that. Um, so what other initiatives are you working on um, with some of these organizations? One of the most important initiatives now deals with behavioral health. Um, sadly, there are very few companies in America that haven't seen a significant crisis in behavioral health, not simply because of the pandemic, but exacerbated by the pandemic. So depression, anxiety, uh, substance abuse, uh, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, these are problems that have multiplied in our country in the last few years. And a lot of uh, patients have a very hard time getting access to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a caseworker. And those that do have access very often have to wait five, six, seven weeks. I mean, what parent uh, wouldn't find it to be a nightmare if you found out that your teenage daughter was deeply depressed, maybe even considering suicide? And you're told you have to wait six weeks for her to get an appointment to see someone. That's terrible on many levels. 
We've worked with a company called Lira that has created a network of several thousand very skilled mental health professionals. And we've used that network to try to reduce waiting times very considerably. So an emergent case like the one I just mentioned would be seen right away, either virtually or in person. And uh, other cases might be seen in two weeks rather than six weeks or, or two months. And this is not just a meaningless economic or time statistic. This is about handling someone's crisis when they most need it. So we've seen uh, we've seen a lot of good things happen as a result of that relationship. Rob, why is working with the self-insured employer so important? And how will this be one part of fixing the healthcare system? It's so important because self-insured employers are among the few groups in the U.S. health market where the right thing to do morally is aligned with the right thing to do financially. Um, I mean no criticism of insurance companies or other providers, but they operate under a different model where if, if, if you're an insurance company and you're not sure how long you're going to have your customer, and people change insurance plans a lot then you're not really rewarded for investing in prevention or other kinds of services that would keep people healthy over a longer period of time. It's not because they're bad people or because they're making a bad decision, but that's the incentive that under which they were. Self-insured employers have responsibility for the care of employees and their families for a longer period of time. Among our members, the median period of time to cover the life is 11 years. So if an employer knows that he or she is going to be responsible for the healthcare bills of a patient for 11 years, yeah, then investing in things like smoking cessation or weight reduction or mental health improvement is not only the right thing to do for the patient's health, it's the right thing to do for your balance sheet. The employee is more likely to show up for work. They're more likely to be productive when they're there. They're more likely to feel better about themselves, which again, is the right thing in a human sense, it's also the right thing in a business sense. And so, Amy, because self-insured employers have that set of incentives, we think that we are well-positioned to help achieve better results. So with that in mind, you know, what is your long-term vision for the HTA and where would you like it to, to go next? HTA wants to be a force in creating a health system in the United States where providers get paid for great outcomes rather than for how many procedures they do. The way the system is set up now, let, let's take as an example uh, an endocrinology practice deals with diabetics. Um, I want to say, first of all, that there are lots and lots of outstanding doctors, nurses, therapists, health aides working in the system. We have a great system when it comes to the talent and dedication of the people who deliver the care. They do a great job. But the rules that they work under are backwards. So an endocrinology practice gets paid on the basis of how many times you see the patient, not whether the patient controls their diabetes well or not. We think about that for a minute. Imagine you got into an Uber and uh, the Uber driver got paid on how many right turns they made on the trip to the airport. You'd have a very strange trip to the airport. It would probably take longer. It'd be less safe. It wouldn't be as efficient. The Uber driver essentially gets paid on getting you to the airport safely and on time. Uh, healthcare is the opposite of that. 
the endocrinology practice gets, if they see you 20 times, they make more money if they see you 10 times. And if your blood sugar is, your A1C level is 16 and you're on the verge of a stroke or a heart attack, it, it doesn't affect the way they get compensated. So we want to be a part at the HTA, we want to be a part of changing that so that providers are paid on the basis of how well do they do their job at achieving a great health result. I want to say this also. To be fair to providers, you have to take into account how sick the patient was when they came through the front door. If one endocrinology practice is dealing with people who are affluent, well-educated, have access to good food, have access to a supportive family, it's going to be easier to manage that person's diabetes than an elderly person who has a low income and lives in a food desert. So you have to take into account how difficult it is to help the patient. But we want to be part of fostering a system where the way healthcare providers in our country get paid is on the outcomes that they produce. Did the diabetic get the blood sugar under control? When she got the blood sugar under control, did it reduce the chance she has a stroke or heart attack or kidney failure or other kinds of problems? Um, so we want to be a part of a, of a, of a system that rewards great providers for achieving great results. Rob, you mentioned mental health, which is a really big issue uh, for uh, obviously our our industry and our population. And also we we tend to follow um, mental health issues on our show just because they they impact so many. What other areas of, of health care do you think are ripe for innovation and change? I think primary care generally is. I'm old enough to remember the Marcus Welby television program. Probably most of your audience is far too young for that. But Marcus Welby was this mythological figure who was a a genteel, kindly family doctor who each week on each episode would solve some problem, some medical and some social. But Marcus Welby was this trusted source of advice for people. We think that is now missing from the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, it's really hard to find a primary care doctor at all in some places. If you can, she sees you for seven minutes because she gets paid on the basis of how many people she sees patients in this course of a day. She probably doesn't have a lot of data about your condition before you walked into the visit. And you may not ever be able to see her again because there's this sort of roulette wheel that decides which doctor you get to see when. We think that if you replace that by going back to a system where more people had a doctor with whom they had a relationship of trust, where the doctor had a lot of information about the patient, where the doctor had the ability to not just sense what the person's lab test said, but how the person's doing, whether they're depressed, whether they're happy, whether they're up, whether they're down, that you're going to get considerably better health results in the country. So HTA is working on a a system, a a product really to do that, that essentially is creating a network of doctors, primary care doctors around the country that will be paid on the basis of health results rather than how often they see you or how long they see you. So to put this in very practical terms, if, if the way the practice is paid and the doctor is paid is more on the basis of is this pre-diabetic healthy? Did they avoid getting diabetes? Did they keep their A1C under control? Did they avoid a stroke or heart attack? Are they healthier as a result of it? If they're paid on that basis, 
rather than how many patients did I see this hour, we think you begin to recreate the Marcus Welby type of model. And so we are starting, we, we signed up our first employer for this this week, our first health clinic for this this week. By the end of this year, we anticipate having four or five employers with about 400,000 people eligible to have this kind of coverage. And at 422 clinics around the country, covering about a third of the country geographically in that way. Where we'd like to get to, Amy, is a system where you or Julie or one of your listeners would live near such a clinic. If you worked for one of the HTA member companies, you'd be able to see that clinic if that's what you want wouldn't be forced to do it, but you'd be able to have that relationship with Marcus Welby, that relationship with a, a real trusted source of healthcare that we think would make you healthier and help the whole system. Well, I know that um, my husband actually goes to a physician that has more of that Marcus Welby model um, because he opted out of the insured system. Um, so he's, yeah. you know, this physician is all about cash pay and he'll spend as much time with you as you need, you know. Um, That's called concierge care. And in our view is it's great that Julie, your husband could do that. And I'm glad he did. We think everybody should be able to do that. And I we, agree. we think that yeah. if you're a stall, if you're a store clerk at Foot Locker, or if you're a data scientist at Caterpillar or a loan officer at American Express, or a, uh, you work in accounting at Marriott, we think any of those people. And their families should be able to make that same choice that your husband did. And we think their insurance ought to pay for it or cover it. And uh, it's a long way from where we are now to getting there. But the evidence that this works is pretty compelling. There's, there's a company called Oak Street Health, which was just bought by CVS Aetna. The deal just closed about two weeks ago. And Oak Street Health used the Marcus Welby model for Medicare Advantage patients. I think you understand Medicare Advantage patients are Medicare-eligible people who choose to go into a plan run by an insurance company rather than regular Medicare. You see all the ads on TV all the time for Medicare Advantage programs. More than half of senior citizens uh, in signing up for the first time for Medicare last year chose a Medicare Advantage plan. So the number of people are growing. Oak Street dealt with Medicare Advantage patients, and their results were fabulous. Um, hospital readmission rates is widely regarded as a um, measurement of quality. And in English, what it means is that if you had to go to the hospital and you went back within 30 days, that it's, it's used as an indicator that something's still wrong with you. Um, it's an imprecise indicator, but it's one that's widely accepted. The reduction in, in hospital readmissions rates was staggering for Oak Street patients compared to other kinds of patients who didn't use the Marcus Welby model. So we think that the evidence is there that the Marcus Welby model works. We want to try to make it available to as many of our four and a half million people as we can, as soon as we can. And then we want to grow. Now, I'd like to see the day when any of your listeners, whether they're with an HA company or not, would have the ability to choose, not be forced into, but choose that kind of model of primary care because we think that would make them healthier, make their, our system cost less, and produce a lot of healthier people. And yeah. you you touched on something um, you know that I think is important too that HTA is focusing on, which is you know how can we improve the quality of healthcare for everyone? 
right? Regardless yeah. of, you know, your where you live or your zip code or, you know, all of those things. So if you could just talk a little bit more about that, you know, the disparities that we we have in the healthcare system and how HTA is approaching it. The disparities we have in our healthcare are are, are shameful for the United States. Um, even if you take into account um, or if you rather, if you rule out factors like age or income or comorbidities, other diseases that people would have, people of color are much more likely to have asthma, diabetes, various forms of cancer than people who are not people of color. Rural people are much more likely to have those same kind of problems than urban or suburban people. And I think the most shameful fact that I saw among many shameful facts in health disparities was that um, during the worst of the COVID crisis, the chances of dying from COVID were significantly higher for people of color than people who are not people of color. Death, death we're talking about here. And again, this is adjusting for all the other problems people have. Now, why is that? In the case of uh, COVID, one of the findings that occurred, pulse oximeters, of course, measure the, how much oxygen is getting to your extremities. And a low pulse ox reading means you're having significant breathing trouble. There was research done that said that pulse oximeters operate on a principle that the laser in them penetrates the skin and reads your oxygen level. Some of the lasers can't easily penetrate darker colored skin. So when African-Americans were going for a pulse ox, there were many instances where the pulse ox, pulse oximeter machine wasn't accurately reading their pulse oxygen level and overstated it. So in a case where the pulse ox was reading 98%, which is very, very healthy, it's possible the patient would have been at 88%, which is really unhealthy. And the fact that this was missed literally led to the deaths of a lot of people that were unnecessary. Literally, the color of their skin is what mattered. HTA employers want to address that problem by the power of the purse. Our members spend about $30 billion a year in the U.S. health market. And we want to say to providers and insurance carriers and Medicare and others, fix that problem. I mean, there's some evidence that there are some pulse oximeters that are sensitive to color of skin and don't have that problem. So use that machine. So we it, look, in, in the U.S. economy, and I say this is a good thing, people do what they get paid to do. They don't do what they don't get paid to do. And if, if, if you take a $30 billion a year checkbook, which our members have, and put it behind the proposition that we want the best pulse oximeter care for people of all races that's available in the market so there's an accurate reading. That's what providers would do. So we've tried to approach this problem by linking payment to outcome. And the particular area of of disparities, that means, I mentioned Lyra earlier, um, our behavioral health partner. They provide more access to more people in rural areas than otherwise. They have more psychiatrists and psychiatrists have offices there. They have more readily acceptable uh, digital interactions with providers. So if a a teenager who lives 60 miles from a hospital wakes up this morning, God forbid, with suicidal thoughts, Lyra is more likely to be able to connect her to someone who can help her sooner than someone who can't. 
And so that's how we think you fix health disparities. Yeah. Rob, going back and looking at a more macro level, as as you were talking, I was wondering, I was wondering what your thoughts were on what the healthcare landscape will look like in five to ten years, and will well, will we still be talking about how we fix a broken system? I, I think about that every day, and um, I know what I'd like it to look like, which is that more providers more often get paid on how well they produce an outcome. That's what I want it to look like. We're going to do whatever we can to make that real. But there's a couple of things that I know are going to happen because of what we're watching in other areas of the economy. Uh, Julie and I were talking before we went live here. I have daughters who are 30 and 28, and um, they've never written a check. And I don't mean that they don't support themselves. I mean that they've never written a check. All They pay all their bills and do their banking electronically. They watch movies on Netflix. They have never hailed a cab. Anytime that they needed a ride, they use Uber or Lyft. This is their life. This is the way that they live. And there are four things that my daughters and their peers, the generation, their 20s and 30s and younger, expect. The first is that a product will be available to them when they want it, not when it's convenient for the supplier of the product. The second is that they want to be able to access the product, lots of the product. They don't want to hear that someone's out of it. If they want a pair of purple high-heeled shoes, they want purple high-heeled shoes, size four, whatever, and Amazon delivers it to the front door. So they want they want the service or product available when they want it. They want sort of unlimited choice of what they're going to get in the product. Um, they want a good price. They want to know the market and know what they should be paying for something, what they shouldn't. And they want a good price that they think is of value and they want convenience. They don't want to pick it up at the, at the store in the parking lot. They don't want to have to wait four days for it to arrive in a box. They want it delivered at five o'clock this afternoon in the front door. Healthcare is exactly the opposite of that. Exactly the opposite. You see the provider when he or she has time for you, not the other way around. Um, the choices are very often limited as to what care you can get and what options you have, limited either by geography or by other uh, economic factors. You don't even know what the price is a good percentage of the time, and you, you don't really have the ability to compare based on quality or price or value. And it's very often very inconvenient. That is going to change because consumers are going to demand that it changes. Now, we've already seen some early signs of that. You know, virtual doctor visits were kind of rare and exotic 10 years ago. They existed. I would say at least a third of your listeners are doing virtual visits with their doctor now. It's still very hard to get information that compares one doctor to another, one hospital to another, but it's becoming more and more available. Government now, the federal government now has a law that hospitals have to publish their prices and people are learning how to use that information. Um, people are becoming more educated about their own choices that, that people, my daughter's age, before they buy something, do a lot of research on their own. They, they listen to what other buyers thought about a product. They, you know, they, they find all kinds of information in cyberspace about the product and then they make a buying decision. I think they're going to expect the same thing in healthcare and it will be the case. So 
to answer your question, I think five or 10 years from now, uh, the landscape will be much more consumer friendly because it will have to be. I hope it is more consumer friendly in a way that you can more easily find a physician or a hospital or a therapist who gets paid on the basis of how good a job they do for you, not how many times they see you. Well, thank you for that, Rob. That that all is really insightful information. And I know that our listeners will appreciate your thoughts um, as we forge through these these next years and um, and decades of healthcare. So thank you very much for your thoughts. And we always, uh, whenever we wrap up our conversations, we always love to keep it light and ask a fun question. And since you are here on the morning fix, we would like to know what you do for your morning fix. I watch the sun come up and and that's not to say that I'm uh, an insomniac. Uh, (laughs) I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and most of my business associates, my teammates in HTA and a lot of our business associates are in the Eastern time zone. And so I try to stay on East Coast time pretty much most of the year to accommodate the people I work with. And so that means I usually see the sun come out. And uh, I'm sitting in a home office right now and looking to my east. And I was in here very early this morning and watched the sun come up. And, and it's you have to be here pretty early this time of the year. But in December and January, it's a little bit later. I find it to be uh, calming. I, I find watching the sunrise to be calming. It reminds me that there are things that are much bigger than me in the universe and much uh, much more consequential than what I do every day. It's humbling, but it also has a certain s- effect of giving you serenity, that you're part of something much larger and much more beautiful. And whatever challenges or bumps in the road you have that day somehow seem easier to navigate that way. Well, thank you for that. That, that's, that is, I love that. Uh, that's a beautiful uh, response. And I, Julie, I don't think that we've, uh, we've heard uh, watching the sunset. And what a wonderful meditative way to sunrise. 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 <laughs> yeah, that actually, that is the first, first one that we've heard. And, and it's been really interesting because so many of the answers have not overlapped, surprisingly. I mean, I don't know how many episodes we've done at this point, but. We really haven't, I mean, sure, everybody will talk about their coffee or their tea or whatever, but there's been so many unique answers to this question that I wouldn't have expected. So you, you know something, uh, that's interesting. I, I find that um, the first thing you do every day is incredibly uh, subjective and personal. Uh, it, it's because it, it's, an, it's a proxy for what's important to you. And, and I, I guess if you ask 100 people what's important to them, you get maybe 200 answers, or at least 800. And I think it's a really interesting way to see what someone values and, and what situation they're in. But I, uh, it's a great question. I, I think we should ask everybody that. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and it's funny. We, we have a, a cafe coffee-themed podcast. And so it was one of those questions that we decided would be appropriate to to wrap up the conversation but i don't think what we realized was how in, honestly how insightful and how hu- how human yeah. the question is and to your point rob it brings out people's humanity and everybody 
It is. It's an insight into how they live their life and their values. Do they walk their dog? Do they start the day with prayer? Do they start the day right. with being with their children or their spouses or to going for a nice walk in nature? So it, it has become sort of, a, sort of an iconic question, I think. I, it, I think another iconic question that I ask a lot, maybe not explicitly, but I ask, what's the last thing that made you laugh? And it, it tells you a lot about someone that, and my answer would have been, um, there are four cats at this moment in our household. Uh, to each my daughter's, my daughter has one cat, other daughter has two, and then my daughter's boyfriend's sister is here and she has one. So we have four cats running around the house. And so what made me laugh this morning was when I got up at three o'clock this morning to watch this, six o'clock Eastern. They all followed me into the home office and sat here, all four of them, looking longingly at me so that I would feed them. <laughs> and and I I uh, I tried, but these four cats have dietary needs as broad as like any wedding you've ever planned, that they eat different things. I can never remember who eats what. And if you put the wrong food out, you can create lots of havoc. So I had to sort of say to them, sorry, guys and ladies, but you're going to have to wait. And I thought... How would my business associates react if they if if they asked me what's the first conversation I had today and I said it was with four cats <laughs> who were begging me to feed them uh, so it that's what made me laugh today I love it I love it well it has been such a joy to connect with you and hear more about what you are working on and you know the important work that HTA is doing so you know thank you again for your time thank and you. we will hopefully see you again soon I look forward to it. Thanks to Amy and Julie very much.